Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Uh, Monday, Thursday is traditionally the time that we celebrate where Jesus is in the upper room in Jerusalem. They've already made the trek into Jerusalem, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. That night before they break bread together, Jesus does what is traditionally reserved for uh, the lowest servant in the house of the time, in the Jewish households or any other households in that time period, is he takes a basin, a towel, he takes his outer garment off, he wraps himself around the waist with this long towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And in John chapter 13, we see this narrative unfold where Jesus, God in the flesh, is kneeling before his creation, the object of his love, humans, the one he is about to be arrested, the ones he's about to be arrested for crucified because of and buried in a tomb. And I have to imagine that night as Jesus is kneeling around each of those disciples and beginning to wash their feet, the moment of that experience takes on significant meaning for the disciples as well as to the Lord Jesus. For not only is he washing their feet, he's going to surrender his life on their behalf for forgiveness of sins in just a few hours beyond that point. And I've asked uh, Josh, I've asked Mr. Markle here to be a part of this experience with me. He said he's been growing his toenails out for this for some time. That's what he texted me last week. He said, so I hear you're going to wash me. We actually do a foot washing service on Thursday night, and it will be at 530 and everybody's welcome to that. But guess what? It's usually our lowest attended service because you say, I'm not a foot person. Well, guess what? I'm not either. I grew up in this tradition, and we do this not because we think it's sacred or holy, but we do this to remind ourselves of what we should be to one another because of what Christ has been for us, that we should be serving one another, kneeling before one another. How much different would the world be if we actually took the mandate of Jesus to serve one another in love rather than fighting with one another with clenched fists? And so the ones that he was dying for would actually reject him in those last few moments. Like sheep, they would all scatter. Isaiah 53 already proclaimed that 700 years before. And he would be left alone in just a few moments after he did this. So would you let me do the honors? So on Thursday night at 5.30, we welcome you to be a part of the service. And I thought I would try to take some of the fear factor off of this and show you what this looks like. And so, like Jesus did, and he would have been dressed a whole lot differently than I am today, and you wouldn't have been okay with that dress and style because many of you prefer, you know, neckties and suits. Um, he would have been basically in his underwear, in his tunic. He would have stripped down to the final robe underneath of his outer robe. And he would have knelt before his disciples with the water, which I doubt would have been warm. This is actually warm just so you know. Actually, I think one might do it. No, let's do two. And he would have taken the feet of his disciples that had walked dusty roads because there was no pavement, no gravel roads. It would have been dirt pathways. Even in the cities, even if they were cobblestones, they would have been extremely dirty. Manure laden because of donkeys and different beasts of burden that were carrying things through the town, and he would have taken the feet of his disciples around the table that night that have not been cleaned by the servant, and he would have washed them, already a clean foot, and he would have taken that foot, and he would have dried it, and looked them, sorry, did I flip you off? <laughs> sorry, dried it, looked them in the eyes, and I can only imagine what that look must have been like. Do you know he comes to Peter that night? As he's come to the other disciples, 
and he's done this for them. And Peter realizes the significance of the moment as he says, you are the Christ. You, you, you are our master and savior and teacher. You, we should be washing your feet. You shouldn't be washing our feet. Thank you. And Jesus says, if I don't do this for you, you can have no part of me. And so Peter, as is his normal self, would say, well, all right, then clean all of me head to toe. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's only your feet are dirty. I'm just going to clean your feet. How many of us would refuse the gift of Jesus? It's very humbling to do this. It's more humbling to sit in the seat and have your feet washed than to be the washer of feet. Let's not reject the gift of Jesus. So we welcome you to be a part of the service. Men and women will not be together. We have men in one room, women in another. And that's at 5.30 here at North Main. You are so kind. So you're serving me by taking this. Here, let me wrap you around your foot towel. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Um, so we welcome you to that service. But we also welcome you to our Seder meal, which is just following. We actually will have a full meal, but we're going to be celebrating the Passover the way the Jewish uh, leaders and, and, and individuals would be that night. But we're going to be doing it in a way to reflect that last supper with Jesus and look at the significance of Jesus' Passover meal with his disciples. And so that's at 6 o'clock, and uh, we welcome you to be a part of that. Now, children... You are dismissed to Children's Church through the side door here. Make sure you have your tags with you so that the, your parents or guardians can check you out. All right. Oh, look at the mass exodus. There goes half of our congregation right there. Um, it's April the 2nd, and uh, we start a new series today, and I wrestled with the message today. Um, the message I had planned for you, I, ba I basically scrapped. I had written most of it, was almost done, almost had the print work ready. And I think it was Wednesday, late, early Thursday, when all my print work has to be turned in, I threw the office staff a curveball and I said, I can't do this message. So I've been impressed upon, I needed to do a more traditional Palm Sunday message. And... Um, and it's, it's with a heavy heart that I do this. And I, I think it's because of the things that have developed over this week in our nation with the shooting yet again of another school, um, three innocent children and three adults. And um, if anything, it shows really the depravity of our world at this point, how completely and utterly messed up we are as a people, and how completely and utterly, desperately in need of a Savior. And I don't know what our churches across this nation or across the globe are preaching this morning, but I know the message the Lord laid on my heart to speak to you today is one where Jesus is actually entering Jerusalem in what we would call the triumphal entry on that Sunday before he would be crucified. And Luke's gospel gives us a picture of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day. And the people are laying palm branches down like we have in here today. And they were laying their coats and their cloaks along the road as Jesus rolled this donkey, this colt, into Jerusalem. And he comes to a point in his journey as he crests this hill and he's able to see the wide expanse of the valley below where Jerusalem sits in all of its splendor. The temple, the second temple technically of Herod is standing there magnificent upon the temple mount which no longer exists today. And Jesus instead of beholding the magnificence of that site and swelling with a sense of pride begins to weep. And as a matter of fact, it, our English language doesn't do it justice. The words that the Greek uses for Luke's passage of the triumphal entry is that he sobbed uncontrollably as he's looking out over the vast expanse of Jerusalem. 
I think if Jesus were entering any of our cities today, he might do the same thing. That he might weep uncontrollably due to the fact that he's offered a gift of love and mercy to those who would receive it, and yet it's been rejected. You can't take a look at our culture and not see the love and the mercy of God having been rejected. When you look at the newspaper, turn on your TV, listen to the radio. I want to start with some statistics this morning, but before I do, let me read you um, a short narrative by author and missionary Lou Nichols. Listen to what he writes. He says, a while ago, my wife and I were eating lunch at a Christian camp and conference center. He said, we sat down at the table with two couples that we'd never met before. And during our conversation, we learned that they were staying in their motorhomes in the RV park and had sort of landed there by accident, not realizing that it was actually a Christian camp that they were camping at. One of the ladies then asked me what was meant by the term being born again. And when I asked each of them if they had ever trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, one lady said that she was fortunate to have been a Christian all of her life as she grew up in a good home. And when I shared how that we are saved by God's grace and that there's nothing that we can do, the lady seemed blind to this truth, as if it were a foreign concept of what this being born again as a new creation in Christ Jesus actually meant. What did it mean to be saved from sin and death? She had no concept of that. Though she grew up in a Christian home and lived a good life, of good morals and ethics. In their book entitled Unchristian, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons explain how they survey people about a biblical worldview. Did you know there is such a thing as a biblical worldview? Okay, and depending on whose research you look at, it varies a little bit, but there are key components in a biblical worldview that necessitate what an actual biblical worldview is. And I want to read to you eight of those, um, eight of those things that would necessitate a person having a biblical worldview, at least by Barna, the Barna Research Group as they took on this survey. He goes on, at Barna, we employ dozens of tools to assess the depth of a person's faith. Let me suggest for one of our discussion, a biblical worldview. A person with a biblical worldview experiences, interprets, and responds to reality in light of the Bible's principles. Not the world's, but the Bible's. Okay, that can seem really generic, so what are the Bible's principles that influence how we respond to the realities of the world? He goes on to write, for the purposes of our research, we investigate a biblical worldview based on these eight elements. A person with a biblical worldview believes that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Number one, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Number two, God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Okay? Number three, salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Number four, Satan is real. Number five, a Christian has a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people. Number six, the Bible is accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Number seven, unchanging moral truth exists. And number eight, such moral truth is defined by the Bible. That's what necessitates a biblical worldview. If you said yes to all of those, then you probably have a biblical worldview in which you view the rest of the world through. But if you've said no to any one of those or multiples of those, then chances are you have what's called a syncretistic worldview. And a syncretistic worldview actually is somewhat Christian, but it's influenced by all the other dominant worldviews of the world. Secular New Ageism, there's, uh, there's Islam, there's all these other dominant worldviews out there. 
and that those who do not accept a biblical worldview either reject all of those eight outright or they accept some of them, claim to be believers in Christ, but adopt other worldviews as well, and they have what's called an eclectic worldview and what we call syncretism. And that's not a biblical worldview. Listen to what they go on to say. In our research, we have found that people who embrace these eight components live a substantially different faith from other Americans, indeed, from other believers. What we believe influences our choices. And then listen to what, he, listen to what they write based on their research. Getting back to the issue of spiritual depth, of two wor- uh, if two-thirds of young adults have made a commitment to Jesus before, how many do you think possess a biblical worldview? They break down the different generations that we have today. I'm a part of this first generation, they point out, the Generation X. And those are individuals born between 1965 and 1980. I'm right smack dab in the middle of that. Of those who claim to be Christian, how many do you think hold a biblical worldview? 7%. Some of the latest research today shows millennial parents. They're the largest parental group in the United States right now, millennials. 67% of all millennials in the United States that are parents claim to be Christian. But only 2% claim to have a biblical worldview. Okay, let me read on. What about millennials? Already told you that. What about uh, boomers? What's a boomer? 1946 to 1964. If you were born during that time period, you would be a baby boomer. Did you know that they are only slightly more in percentage than Gen Xers? 9% hold a biblical worldview. And you're talking about anywhere from 50% or more of Christians in the United States in each of these generations claim to be believers in Christ, but the slimmest percent hold a biblical worldview. Why do you think the condition of our nation is as it is today? Where is the basis for all moral truth? That is the good question we need to be asking ourselves right now. Because at one time in our history, we knew at least more confidently that the scripture was that. No, we would debate the interpretation of it as we do today. And we would say, well, we're not like that group or this group, but at least there was a sense of unity around the core concepts of faith. Even in our various denominations, we would all claim that those eight core principles were non-negotiable. But we've slid in the 1900s or the 20th century into the 21st century with an ever-degrading perspective of a biblical worldview. And you can see what's happening in the world today as symptomatic of that problem. It's It's not that we've gained more freedom, it's that we've lost more freedom as we've lost a biblical worldview. You know what the enemy does? Satan, who I believe is real, the evil one, the adversary, whatever name you want to call him by, he is a great deceiver. He has had millennia to hone his craft of deceit and confusion to the point to where his lies can be super convincing. Oh, just do this thing. It's going to be okay. You're not hurting anybody but yourself. Whose business is it anyway to know X, Y, or Z about you? Whatever your truth is, is good. This is one of the things that annoys the junk out of me, trying to keep my language, you know, trying to, you know, keep the words down. But this is really, let's be honest. Um, What is truth? What is your basis for truth? You see, Pilate wanted to know that as Jesus was standing in front of him, and Jesus was actually having this conversation in Pilate's palace, the governor's palace in Jerusalem. 
Jesus is telling him, those who stand on the side of truth know my message. They know who I am. What is truth, Pilate asks. And without even giving Jesus an opportunity to respond, he walks out of the room. That's what we do today. We don't really want to know what truth is because, quite honestly, truth, and I said this to my class that I was teaching this morning, by its very nature is exclusive. And as a culture, we don't like exclusivity. We are all about inclusivity. Are you guys with me? Okay, just making sure because you're like, some of you are like, I can't, what's, what's he doing? Uh, just making sure you're still with me. But truth by its very nature is exclusive. The lights that are shining on this back wall are blue. I could tell you they're red, and unless you're colorblind, you might debate with me, but the reality is they're blue. And there's no amount of truth that can change the light on the back wall to be any other color than what it's shining. Now, they can switch it to red by a click of a button, and it would be red. But blue can't be red, just as red can't be blue. They are two different colors. I said this to my class this morning, and unless you're into this new inclusive math where 2 times 2 can equal 15, 2 times 2 or 2 plus 2 actually equals 4. It can't be anything other than it actually is. And I know this isn't good stuff to hear in our culture right now. Because you can be anything you want to be in our culture. If you want to be an otter that swims around in water, you can identify as that and you can be whatever you want to be. But the reality is you're not. And is truth still truth even if we reject it? Yes. Margie Noah, one of our sweet saints, is right back there. Hi, Margie. She brought a picture in this morning. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. I love her. She brought a picture in this morning as one of her favorite pictures, and it has a verse inscribed on it that hangs in her living room. Is that your living room? Dining room. And it's one of my favorite verses. It was the life-altering verse that changed the course of my life when I was in school studying for the ministry. I wasn't sure, is Jesus truly the only way? Is the word of God really truth? And can I truly stake my life on this as a minister of the gospel? And I was really, I almost was at this point where I left, I was going to leave because if I can't truly in good conscience, believe that the Bible is truly God's word and that Jesus was truly God's son, then I shouldn't be in the ministry at all. And I was seeking God and begging God. And you've heard me say this story before, but I was, as I was searching, seeking the word of God, I came across John chapter 14. And it was the same setting to where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Later that evening in John 14, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. He's making them aware that he's going to be crucified. He's going to be handed over and arrested. But he says, don't worry, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. That's how John 14 starts out. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when it's prepared, I will come back and get you. He doesn't, they don't realize he's meaning, I'm going to die. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And at just the right time, when the Father says to come back and get you, I will return and call you to be in heaven with me. One of the disciples pipes up. His name's Thomas. You remember doubting Thomas? I won't believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands and see the scar in his side. I won't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. That same Thomas, just a few days before, looks at Jesus after he said, just show, Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He says, well, show us the way so we know how to get there. Wherever that place is you're going to go prepare for us, tell us where it is so that we know how to get to where you're going. And he looks And Thomas and all the other disciples, and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That 
was a life-altering verse for me. In my crisis of faith, I had to come to grips. Either that is a truth statement from the lips of the Son of God, or it is a lie. What do you say? Jesus is the way. He is the truth, which all other truth is seen through, and he is the life. We read verses from Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1. It is through Christ that everything has existence. Everything that ever came into existence has its existence and continues to subsist because of the creative act of Christ. That word that God used to speak everything into existence, that word which God used to create the vast expanses of the universe that separated light from darkness and land from water, that word that God used to speak everything into existence, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now that same way and truth and life is making his entry into Jerusalem one last time. And listen to Luke's narrative of this event in Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem walking ahead of his disciples. He'd been staying in Bethany and Bethpage at that point, which are just two little small towns outside of Jerusalem. They haven't found Bethpage today. Archaeologists are still looking, but we know where Bethany is, the actual city, because that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, 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 I have a speech, I have a lisp, Lazarus, Lived. You remember Lazarus who died and was buried in a grave for four days before Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's where Bethany is. That's where Mary and Martha are. And Lazarus, as Jesus is making his triumphal entry, who was once dead but is now alive, Jesus and the disciples had been staying with them before they make their triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent his two disciples ahead. He says, go into the village over there, and as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie that donkey and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Jesus had already prearranged this, right? Lakin, I get it. It's just, just the Lord needs it. Jesus had already said, this is the magic words. The Lord needs it. So they went and they found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, what did they find tied there? They found the donkey, the colt. And the owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples simply stated, the Lord needs it. Oh, okay. That's all you needed to hear. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. These words from Psalm 118, which is still traditionally spoken at the Passover meal of Jewish folks today. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. It's blasphemy. Tell them you're not that king and that Messiah. It's basically what they're saying. You see, we only use those words at our Passover meal about the coming Messiah, and you're not him, so rebuke your disciples for saying that. What does Jesus reply? If they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. 
All of creation sings the glory of God. Even those things that are, that are inanimate have this impression of creation on them by the Holy Creator. If they keep quiet, even the stones along the road will cry out in honor of their Creator. But as they came closer to Jerusalem, they saw the city of Head, and he began to weep. Sob. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. Who is he talking about? Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the holy city, the city of David, through whom the Messiah was to come. One of David's descendants. It had been told for generations up to this point. They had been awaiting a descendant of David. To be the Messiah. And Jerusalem had rejected their Messiah. You heard it in the voice of the religious leaders that were telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples for even claiming that. And so Jesus weeps because he knows they've rejected their own God. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace but now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you to close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize. Listen to what he says. When God visited you, Those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God are just filling you a line of nonsense. There were countless times where not only did Jesus allude to the fact that he was God in the flesh, he spoke it very clearly, but people were blind or deaf to the words or to the sights of Christ. He's saying, God has visited you and you've rejected God. John chapter 1 John tells us, along with the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he came to his own, but his own received him not. Do you remember those words? Echoing the same sentiments. Jesus is somber as he enters into Jerusalem this one final time. He's not celebratory like everybody else is because he knows in just a matter of hours, <coughs> or in a matter of days, excuse me, he's going to be arrested for crimes he never committed, trumped up charges. He's going to be standing before the Jewish Supreme Court of the time called the Sanhedrin. And they're going to be questioning him, and he's going to remain silent, like a sheep that's led before the shearers to be, or like a, a sheep before the shearers remain silent, Isaiah 53. He will remain silent in front of his accusers. He's going to be beaten. He's going to experience loss like he's never experienced up to this point. And he's going to experience the rejection of God while hanging on the cross as God pours out the cup of judgment and wrath on him while he takes the weight of the sin of the world upon himself so that you and I can have a direct line to God through Jesus Christ in salvation. And so as he enters in, it's bittersweet because he knows he's fulfilling the Lord's will on his life, but he also knows what that means. Let me move quickly through this. Spiritual blindness leads to brokenheartedness. There's so much spiritual blindness. I'm not even going to talk about the rest of the world today. I'm going to talk about the United States. There's so much spiritual blindness in the United States. But lest you think I'm talking about the secular culture, I'm talking about our churches. That's where, my, that's where I truly break, where I carry the greatest burden, and it's not mine to carry, is that our churches are not speaking the truth in love oftentimes. 
or they're not hitting the tough issues of Scripture that speak into directly the issues of our day. You know, challenging messages don't typically grow a mega church. <laughs> they don't. Challenging messages where you're dealing with issues of sin and death and what Jesus calls sin and those things that lead to death, those don't tickle the ears of people to make them feel good. But as a minister of the gospel and any minister across this world, they should be willing to tell you the unadulterated truth of the word of God in every facet that it's laid out in. And there's where my heart breaks is because my desire is to preach the word with integrity and not just give you a sprinkled verse here and there, but to give you the whole word of God in the process. And, my, and, 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 and I always tell you as often as I can, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. Okay? And don't just read a verse here and there. When you read the word of God, read the chapter before, the chapter after, and the chapter that you're focusing on. Because you need to understand context. You say, Brandon, how do I understand a 2,000-plus-year-old piece of literature? It's more than just a piece of literature. And that's where you welcome the Holy Spirit into this conversation with you as you study the Word of God. As you say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me the truth of your Word. You don't read it like some other book. You go into it with an understanding that this is a holy word given by God to men who wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now when we read it some 2,000 years later, we welcome the Holy Spirit who inspired it back into the picture as he interprets it for us as we read through his word. And where we don't understand, we have the body of Christ to come and learn within context. As iron sharpens iron, we should be sharpening one another with the truth of the word and not just popular psychology. Okay? So Jesus weeps as he's entering in because he knows they have the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, how many Bibles do you have at home? How many Bibles do you have on a device like this? I have any version of Scripture I can get on the Bible app on my phone. We are without excuse but we're the most biblically illiterate we have ever been in our culture. We just are. And I'm not saying in our secular culture, in our churched culture in the United States. Because we're too busy. Because we're, you know, any number of excuses we can. I just, Brandon, I don't read very well. You know what the great thing is on our Bible apps is they can read it to you. Plug it in. If you have a long commute, don't listen to your favorite radio station. Plug in the word and just listen to it if you don't read it. At least you might gain something from it. And you hear the same. I'm telling you, it's, it's a word I've read since I was 14 or 15 years old. And I've begun to, I explored and unpacked it and continued to do that. And I, as much as I've read it, it's amazing what God reveals and opens up that I never saw before or didn't see within a context. Or maybe it's a stage of life that I'm currently in that I never was, that now that verse is speaking to me in a way that it never did. And I'm like, ugh. Or, wow, how did I miss that? There's truth and nuggets of truth laden all throughout that continue to breathe life into me as I seek it and search it. See, they embraced Jesus as king. Did you know how they embraced him as king? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the other verses, uh, other narratives of the triumphal entry in Matthew and Mark's gospel and even John's gospel, they all carry the triumphal entry narrative. Some of them claim, Hosanna, Hosanna. Do you know what that word means? They're claiming it as a title, but it actually means when translated, save now. 
You know, they're shouting to Jesus on the way into town as they're laying the palm branches down and their cloaks down as he's entering in on this donkey. Save us now! You Messiah, the coming king, save us now. Save us now. But Jesus weeps because he knows their claims for him to save them now means something different than how he came to save. Jesus, raise up a force of soldiers so that we can overthrow the Roman government, the oppressors. Let us be a nation again like we once were in the book of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Kings and Chronicles. Let us be the mighty nation we were under King David. And Jesus was coming as a king as a matter of fact, he was coming as a prince of peace, and, and he says to them, remember what he says? How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But see, they were wanting a Messiah to come and with violence raise up and overthrow their oppressors. They didn't know their God because they rejected the words of their prophets who said he would come as one to bring salvation to his people from their sins. Their prophets never indicated that he would come as a militant, hell-bent on raising up a soldier army to lay people out. He would become the king of kings, the almighty God of them but he would do so by the way of peace. And he would do so by dying for them. What mighty triumphant king or authority have you ever seen conquer anything through death? Except Jesus. And so he realizes they don't understand Yes, they're willingly calling me king, but I'm not the kind of king they think I am. This is why when he stands before Pilate later that week, and Pilate says, so I hear you're king of the Jews. And he says, you say so. Basically, what he's saying to Pilate is, are those your words, or did somebody say that to you? Are you proclaiming that about me, or is that just what you've heard? And kind of ticks Pilate off, and he says, why do you talk to me that way? Don't you realize who I am? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, he says, my disciples and my followers, they would have taken up arm, arms against you guys. But that's not my way, nor is that my kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace, and peace will ultimately conquer all. We still are looking for a militant king, aren't we, in the church? God, strike my enemies down. Lay them out. <laughs> I want to watch them squirm, God. Give them what's due them. Those who killed those three children at that Christian school and I pray that they burn in the hottest pits of hell. No. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I've had conversations this week. Brandon, what should we do? Pray. Prayer is the most powerful weapon the Christian has at his or her disposal. And if you don't believe in prayer, then you don't believe in the power of God. And if you don't believe in the power of God, then you're hopeless. And when you see scenes that what happened this week in Tennessee, not only does it wrench your heart if you don't believe in the power of God or the power of prayer, it leaves you hopeless thinking the only way out of this is to raise up arms and to attack or be attacked. 
That's just what the enemy tries to instigate for us to do. He tries to draw us into his battle, on his battlefield, on his terms, when God says, no, that's not the kingdom I've called you to. I've called you to a kingdom of peace, and you can overcome evil by doing good. Don't overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, if you don't know that, those are the very words of God in the scripture that I just quoted to you. Don't be deceived. Jesus comes in, and he comes in with his final appeal as well, a final appeal to them. They're claiming that he is the king coming in in the glory of David. In this final appeal, he waits for them to hear him. See, this final week of his existence on the earth in the place that he truly was destined for as the Messiah, Jerusalem, is not the place that he will rule from technically because that kingdom is one he's weeping over. His religious leaders have been so blinded to the truth that they've rejected their own Messiah, the ones who hold the seat of authority in Jerusalem as the holy people of God have rejected their own God because of religion. Do you see what I'm talking about? We can love religion so much that we reject the God of our religion. We can love our traditions in our religion so much that when traditions are actually compromised, we get weirded out and scared. Rather than looking to God, and asking, what's true? Some of you have heard me say this, but I remember the first year that I was here, and I was getting a lot of pushback because I, I dressed like this. And your previous pastor dressed in a suit and tie. And I, I was getting some pushback on our worship. I still get pushback on the style of worship, okay? I do. Uh, didn't get a ton of pushback, but got some when we put chairs in and replaced the pews. And so I remember that first year I was here, I was teaching a class on a Wednesday night, and I, and I wanted to know not to, I wanted to, to know what the backgrounds were of our people here, and I wanted to know where those beliefs were rooted. And I remember asking questions like, raise your hand if you grew up in the church and you believed it was a sin to play cards even on Sunday, especially on Sunday. This is, do you, did you ever, none of you? Of course, I got my glasses off, so that doesn't help. Here, let me put these back on. How many of you grew up in the church, and if you were a woman, you were not aware, allowed to wear slacks? And for those of you that don't know what slacks are, they're just pants, okay? <laughs> you would never set foot in a physical church building without a dress or a skirt on. How many of you were told or taught it was evil or wrong or sinful to go to the movies? Okay. Now, how many of you have played cards in the last month? How many of you are wearing slacks to church if you're a lady? <laughs> how many of you have seen a movie within the last month? What's changed? What's changed? You see, what we realize is some of those things we stake our claim on and that we're willing, the hills that we're willing to die on are not biblical. This is why we have so much legalism in our churches. We think that our traditions are dying, and some traditions do need to die, not because they were bad, but because they don't serve the purpose that they once did. The reality is, are our traditions rooted in Scripture, not in the culture? Because here's what I often find in the church is our traditions are rooted in the cultural norms of society rather than in Scripture so that when the cultural norms shift, we think everybody's going to hell. But the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we are rooted in Scripture, no matter what styles we change, as long as it's rooted in the truth of the word, it's not going to affect us negatively. 
And I don't say that today because I'm wrestling with anybody against our traditions. I'm not. You guys are amazing. And I mean that sincerely. I'm blessed to pastor a church that has put up with a lot of this over 10 years. And I don't you clap for that. (laughs) Stop it. And I know I'm not perfect, and I've erred in different ways, and you need to know that about every pastor that would ever teach or preach from this stage or any other stage, is they are not perfect, and hopefully they're doing the best they can to be true to the Word of God. But not everybody is. There are some wolves in sheep's clothing, and the only way you can know the difference is to know the appeal of the Father through the Word of God and be able to discern truth from falsehoods. Lastly, and I know it's getting late, please forgive me. They were blinded to God's presence. I don't want to linger too long on this, but I want you to look at Luke chapter 13. So this happens just before Jesus enters the triumphal entry, on his triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. So you get to six verse or six chapters before Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry. Jesus is having a debate again with the religious leaders. And I want you to listen to what he says to them in Luke 13, starting with verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. Why would he say that? Because you look at the Old Testament in the major prophets and the minor prophets. I want you to look how every one of those prophets, I want you to look at how their lives were ended. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament's lives were ended by the hands of their own people. Running them through with swords, cutting their heads off, disemboweling them, stoning them, and Jesus is now crying out just six chapters before his triumphal entry as he's debating with religious leaders. And he says, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. I've wanted to grab you and pull you to safety. But you wouldn't let me. And now, look, your house is abandoned, and you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see how long before the triumphal entry, Jesus says, Jerusalem, I'm not coming back to this city again until it's proclaimed. When I come into the city, that blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What did I tell you in Luke 19? The people were laying the cloaks and palm branches down. What were they proclaiming in Luke's gospel in chapter 19? Blessings is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus is now coming in for the final time. But they were blinded to his presence. As our worship team comes forward to close this out today, let me close with this quote from Fred Craddock. He's a biblical scholar and author. Listen to what he writes. He says, the disciples have hardly finished their song, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When Jesus looks up and he sees the city before him and he weeps, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. The city is blind to its own need for repentance and forgiveness of sin. The substance of the gospel in Luke and Acts. And to the fact that in Jesus, God has visited the city with an offer of peace. One final time, he enters the city and he says, I'm offering you peace. Please accept it. Don't reject it. But he knows what lies ahead. That his rejection will be to the point of being crucified. The offer was rejected, and Israel chose to take up arms against Rome later on in the narrative. Jesus raises from the grave. He gives the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. He ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then some 50 decades later, 40 decades later, in 70 A.D., The prophecy of Jesus on his triumphal entry comes to fruition. Rome builds ramparts against the temple walls. 
and they destroy the temple on the Temple Mount. They tear down the city walls, the city of David, and they leave no stone left on top of another except for the foundation stones, which are still there today, that the Jewish Orthodox people will go to this wailing wall, which is the remaining foundation stones that are left there, and they will pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the coming of the temple yet again. And yet, they've neglected to remember that Jesus already came. He doesn't dwell in, stone, in temples made by men, but dwells within the body of Christ, which is his holy temple, the church. And we still miss it today. He doesn't dwell in buildings made by men, but in the body of Christ who gather together in his name. Do you catch that? There are many people who believe in God but who have neglected to surrender their lives to Christ. They either don't know or have forgotten that Jesus said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. They either don't know or have forgotten what Jesus said to his disciples when he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. They either don't know or have forgotten the words of Jesus to the crowds. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must first turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. They either don't know or they've forgotten that Jesus said, I am the gate to the kingdom of God. Those who come in through me will be saved. Have we embraced Jesus as king in our churches today? Are we listening to his appeals? Are we blinded to God's presence in our midst? Is Jesus weeping over our cities, our towns, and our churches because peace has been hidden from our eyes? We must cry out to God and seek the face of Christ while there's still time. Maybe, just maybe, God will have mercy on us before it's too late. This Palm Sunday of 2023, I don't know where this message has hit you. The previous message I was supposed to speak, maybe I should have spoken that one. But I believe God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, can bring a nudge to our spirits in a way to transform us, to conform us to his will and his ways. And so today, if the Lord has spoken to you through the power of the Holy Spirit that there's something not quite right, that you've been fighting the wrong battles, or you've been fighting the right battles but in the wrong ways, maybe it's time to take up the weapons of peace the way Jesus did. As I've mentioned before, Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, I just said that you have to deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow him. Where did the journey of Jesus end on this earth? He submitted himself to the Father's will and that submission was to the point of death on a cross. And that submission from us can be nothing less than be willing to suffer for his sake. If you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for his sake, you'll gain it. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If you want prayer this morning, if maybe the Lord is speaking to you and you're just really wrestling and fidgety, and you, that's called conviction a lot of times. If you're feeling the weight of something resting on you and you, you're like, I've got to do something. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in those ways to move on us, to get us to move closer to him. If you feel that, we welcome you to come and pray. You can come to my right. There's an altar over here. There's steps on this side, and somebody will pray with you. Maybe you don't know how to pray, and that's okay. If you come to my right, your left, somebody will walk with you through a prayer and give you godly counsel. If you just want to come and reckon with God on your own because you've been impressed upon that you need to pray, you can come to my left, your right, and nobody will bother you over here. There's an altar here, there's steps here, you can kneel here in peace and solitude with your Savior. But please don't leave today without 
continuing this walk in Christ or beginning your first walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we believe this is a holy place, not because it's a building we call a church, but because your people dwell in it, worshiping you and submitting to you. It seems almost curt to say thank you for your sacrifice. And we say it all the time, but I think we have said it so much we become numb to what that sacrifice actually meant. It was the death of Jesus on the cross. He was beaten for us. By his stripes we're healed. Forgive us where we neglect that, where it just becomes some kind of rote incantation. God, let those words seep into the depths of our heart and our minds so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your holy word. Revive our churches in this nation, God. Help us to turn our hearts back to you. You are the only way to peace and to truth. We repent of the ways as a church in which we've gone our own way and done our own things and we ask your forgiveness please come Holy Spirit break our hearts for the things that break yours consecrate us once and again we repent and we turn to you the author and perfecter of our faith and it's in Jesus name we pray amen thanks for joining us this week Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.